So far, in our first study, we have been looking at one or two aspects of this mighty theme, redemption. We're obliged to leave it at that and pass to the balancing word, atonement. Now, in some cases, it may not be necessary to distinguish between the two, because they both refer to the one sacrifice offered by Christ. But there is a distinction, and I think it would be wise for us to consider it. I'd like to turn, first of all, to the only occurrence of the word atonement in the New Testament. I say the word atonement. I mean, don't mean to say that atonement doesn't occur in the New Testament many, many times. But the actual word, so happens, only comes in Romans, the fifth chapter, verse 11. While you're turning for it, I'll read verse 9. Uh, down to 11, much more then, being now justified by his blood, here we are on the subject again, justification, we shall be saved from wrath through him. For if when we were enemies we were reconciled to God by the death of his Son, much more being reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. And not only so, but we also joy in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom we have now received the atonement. Now, the first thing is this. We do not receive the atonement in the sense of the Old Testament word. God receives the atonement. Christ never offered a sacrifice to me. He offered a sacrifice for me. But you say, why does he put it here? Well, I've already read the word atonement in verse 10, twice over. The authorised translators knew that the word meant reconciliation. So they put it in verse 10. But when they came to verse 11, they altered it and use the word atonement. Because 400 years ago, there was a verb actually in use by people to at one anybody. I don't know how we get on today if we, we try to at one anybody. We've, we've dropped the meaning. It doesn't mean to make an atonement in the sense that Christ did. It means to bring about what Christ brought about. So Shakespeare uses it at least four times over. One passage I remember, it reads, he says, I go to make atonement between your brother and the Duke of Gloucester. Well, nobody was going to offer a sacrifice to the Duke of Gloucester. He was going to bring about a reconciliation. So keep in mind that reconciliation is one of the basic meanings of the word atonement. But the atonement itself is the sacrifice that Christ offered. Well, now that means to say we've got to distinguish then between two phases and aspects of this great sacrificial work of Christ. And you have in front of you a little outline. Uh, I'd like you now to consider it. You will see there is only one sacrifice. One of the marvels of the story is that all the types are fulfilled in one offering of Christ. The Passover lamb was offered without an altar, without a priest, without a tabernacle, it was offered just by the father of the family. But there was another sacrifice that could only be offered by the priest and was to do with an altar and the passing through a veil right into the very holiest of all. Two aspects. The one, the Passover, was a deliverance out of and the other was the atonement a taking into. At the bottom of this chart you will see just the skeleton outline of the part of the book of Exodus. Will you notice? I am the Lord. And then it says, a covenant remembered. Then we get to the part in the middle that I want you to notice. I will bring out, I will read you out, I will redeem. That's the redemption side, out. 
But on the other side it says, I will take, I will be, I will bring in. That's the atonement side. So, do remember, if you are ever engaged in preaching the gospel to the unsaved, don't lead them out of Egypt and through the Red Sea and put them on the shore on the other, other side and say, well, good afternoon, I've got a meeting to go to somewhere else and leave them there. Moses didn't. God who led them out of Egypt and their bondage taught them what holiness meant and led them into his presence to be given access and acceptance so far as at least type and shadow is concerned. And on this chart you will see two words. One of them you recognise, Exodus. One of them you may not recognise, Isodus. I've got to put this in so that all may follow this teaching. Would you look at the two words now? In One is in Luke, the ninth chapter. One is in Hebrews, chapter 10. Hebrew, uh, Luke, the ninth chapter. It is dealing with the transfiguration of Christ and it says in verse 30, And behold, there talked with him two men, which were Moses and Elias, who appeared in glory and spake of his decease, which he should accomplish at Jerusalem. Well, to speak about a person accomplishing his decease sounds like almost committing suicide. But when you look at the original word that's used, it begins to have a deeper meaning. The word decease is the word exodus. Moses and Elijah were speaking about the exodus that Christ was going to accomplish. And Moses had an exodus, and Elijah had a miniature one, for he wrapped his garment together and went across the water, dry shod, both of them. Moses and the prophets, the law and the prophets, both standing there speaking of the great fulfilment that Christ was to accomplish. Exodus, a way out. Well, you may say to me, I don't know what, what the word Isodus means, but, oh, surely you've got enough intelligence, haven't you, to guess that if Exodus is put on one door and Isodus on the other, will you go out one way and you come in the other? That's all it means. But I'd like you to see the passage for yourself. The Epistle to the Hebrews, chapter 10. Now, it's very significant that this Isodus word, the word that goes in, is not found in Romans, it's found in Hebrews. Romans has to do with justification. Hebrews has to do with sanctification. Romans doesn't even mention a priest, not once. Hebrews is full of the priesthood. And so we have here in Hebrews 10, verse 19, these words. Having therefore, brethren, boldness to enter into. That's the word Isodus. Boldness of Isodus. We have the Exodus. We're out from our bondage of Egypt. We have the Isodus. We are within the veil, we've gone right through into the holiest of all because we're accepted in the beloved. What well, isn't it wonderful that Christ can be the burnt offering which is completely acceptable to God, a sweet-smelling savour, and be the sin offering that was burned and taken out to a place of ashes outside the camp. He's the Passover lamb offered in Egypt and he's the goat on the day of atonement. He's the whole of this great sacrificial system summed up in one offering. So this Hebrews emphasizes verse 14, for by one offering he hath perfected forever them that are sanctified. The atonement dealing with our, with a saved person and leading him in to the presence of God under the uh, aegis of reconciliation. I've given a, 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 a panel at the top of this chart where you've got 
the Passover, no altar or priest. But with the offerings, we have a, quite a number. We have the choice of a bull or a goat or a lamb or even doves. We have a sweet savour offering. One is sin, one is trespass. We have frankincense with all its acceptable mess. And then we have the accessories, the doorpost, the veil, the altar, and the placing the hand upon the head and confessing the sin and taking it away, and so on. All those I'm suggesting to you who are listening to this tape recording should be studied by you, should be understood and found in their place because they have their place in the type. Well then, when we're using it, you see, the sinner is in view in redemption. While he is ungodly, Christ dies for him. While he was yet sinner's redemption took place. And justification is said to be, it justifies the ungodly. Chapter 5, justifies the ungodly. And it's, it's through his blood. But when you come to the believer, who is now a saved person, well, now the next thing is, he is taken into the presence of God. His sin forgiven. And he stands in a righteousness and a holiness that is provided by God, never in any sense fabricated by himself. You know, in the Old Testament, the stipulations that they must never wear, as the old um, quaint language of the early days says, a linsey woolsey garment. They were never allowed to mingle together linen and woolen, the same as we can do it in our manufacture today, simply because it was confusing two things. You must either have your own righteousness or you must have the righteousness provided by God but you cannot mix the two together. So we have the saint, the sanctification. He has peace. He has access. He has cleansing. Defilement is in view in the atonement. The crime is in view in redemption. Justification is the issue in the law court and access in the temple give the two colourings to the word. And so I've given in the next compartment the Exodus, Luke 9, the Isodus, Hebrews 10. Well now look at the one or two passages that come underneath that heading. Exodus, out of, Isodus, into. There's Ephesians, and there's Peter, and there's Titus. So we'll get six references with turning to three passages. That's the sort of economy you may appreciate. Ephesians 1, verse 7. This is redemption. Ephesians 1, verse 7. In whom we have redemption, through his blood, the forgiveness of sins. Notice we are now on the zenith of the teaching of the scriptures. There's no more spiritual teaching that is higher than Ephesians, Philippians and Colossians. And yet the one thing remains constant, whether you're in the law of Moses, whether barbaric people just coming out of Egypt, or whether you're on the very heights of heavenly places in Christ, one thing remains constant. The redemption is by the shedding of blood, and there's no way of avoiding it without transgressing the truth of Scripture. Now, if you turn the page, you have in chapter 2, uh, 13, the blood of Christ mentioned again, but this time with a very different object in view. Chapter 2.13 Verse 12 tells you what you were like by nature as a Gentile. That at that time ye were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now 
Here's this word again that changes. In Christ Jesus. It doesn't say you who were sinners, but you who sometimes were far off, are made nigh. He's dealt with the question of sin and its guilt. He's now dealing with the question of your dispensation or disability of being a Gentile, far off. He makes you nigh. So there we've got the first thought about the atonement side. And it's so it says that they have access. A little bit further down, verse 18, For through him we the both have access by one Spirit unto the Father. And in chapter 3, verse 12, it says, In whom we have boldness and access with confidence by the faith of him. That's our position. Through his faithfulness unto death, we are not only delivered from our bondage, but we enter into the presence of God without fear. We have godly fear, but with no terror. It's all completely removed. And then we turn to 1 Peter, and we find in 1 Peter 1, there's one aspect, and 1 Peter 3, another. It might be wise to get these before us. 1 Peter 1 says in verse 18, For as much as ye know that ye were not redeemed with corruptible things as silver and gold from your vain conversation received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. There's your redemption from by the blood of the lamb. And then when you turn to chapter 3, verse 18, For Christ also hath once suffered for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God. So just as you have in Ephesians 1 redemption out of, and Ephesians 2 redemption giving you access, so you have in 1 Peter redemption out of, and then the atoning side giving you access, bring you to God. And Titus chapter 2 goes over the same line again. Titus chapter 2. Verse 11. The grace of God that bringeth salvation hath appeared to all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously and godly in this present world, looking for that blessed hope and the glorious appearing of the great God and our Saviour, Jesus Christ. Go back for a minute and pick out the main sentence. The grace of God that saves us teaches us that we should live looking. Now we pick it up. Who gave himself for us, that he might redeem us from, here's redemption from, that's the Exodus bit, redeem us from all iniquity, and purify, here's the atonement side, here's the sanctification side, here's the access part, and purify unto himself a peculiar people, The word peculiar is degenerated in meeting a little bit. We think of a person who's a bit odd, who's got some quips and cracks about him. We say he's a bit peculiar. But uh, the word peculiar means a person who is odd in the sense that he's very precious, that he belongs to somebody, his, his own peculiar treasure. So we have a peculiar people, zealous of good works, Good works do not provide their salvation, but after they're saved they should have good works to manifest that they are saved. You get that strongly emphasised in Titus, six times over we have the question of works. Sometimes 
telling you it's not by works of righteousness which we have done, but also telling you in the same context that we should be zealous of good works, as it says here. And so, we've got these two aspects of the sacrificial work of Christ. He leads us out, and he takes us in. Well, now I'd like to go back to Romans chapter 3 for the last two or three minutes. Our time is nearly up again. And in Romans 3, where we started, I didn't read on into the verse 25, but we'll do so now. Let's go back to where we began. Verse 22, Romans 3. For there is no difference, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. That's the first part, we've looked at it. Now the second. Whom God hath set forth to be a propitiation through faith in his blood. That word propitiation is actually translated in Hebrews the ninth chapter by the word mercy seat. And the mercy seat was not in Egypt. It was in the holiest of all and resting upon the Ark of the Covenant. So we have the two aspects of the work of Christ. The redemption that led us out of our bondage in Egypt and the propitiation which is there in the very holiest of all speaking of our access and our acceptance. But do notice this. The word set forth means to be publicly set forth. This is something exhibited. God wants the world to know that when he saves a sinner, he is not compromising his own holiness. Or whenever you're preaching, never say that God is like a kind uncle patting a child on the head and saying, now don't you do it anymore, you run away. It's not that. It's one who dare not and cannot for the sake of his own glory and the upholding of the universe tolerate sin in anybody. And so rather than we should be lost forever, he spared not his own son. And he died, the just, for the unjust. And God is concerned in this section that we should understand that his justification is more important than even our own. So let's read on. Whom God has set forth to be a propitiation through faith in his blood, to declare his righteousness. That's God's righteousness for the remission of sins of the past. That's why he could forgive David who was a murderer by his own confession. But he nevertheless prayed in Psalm 51 to be cleansed from blood guiltiness and he would sing aloud of God's righteousness. But he couldn't do that under the law of Moses. For there was no sacrifice for a murderer. But David was looking down the age, not looking back to the Son of God. And it goes on to say, to declare, I say at this time, his righteousness, that he might be just, that's God, and the justifier of him which believeth in Jesus. So that is where we have reached. One more thought. Whom God has set forth to be a propitiation through faith in his blood. Does that mean to say that there's a sort of wonderful connection between your faith and that offering of Christ? From one point of view, you remember, the offering of Christ is described like this. That by wicked hands he was taken and crucified and slain. Now that's what it stands on the page of history. That's how it's entered into the law book of Pilate's account and sent to Rome. He didn't say he did it wickedly, but that's what it amounts to. That here was someone who was taken, apprehended, crucified as a criminal. That's one thing. Have your eyes been opened to see something other? Have you faith in that blood? If you have, it turns that bitter 
cross and that awful murder into the most mighty and marvellous sacrifice the world could ever conceive. The gift of God to make it possible for sinners to be redeemed from their bondage, to be given access and to be accepted in the Beloved. There's a further aspect of this which I can only touch upon and that is presentation. As a consequence of this atonement, this presentation is expressed in more ways than one to present unto himself a church without spot or wrinkle or any such thing. We give thanks unto God who has made us all sufficient to be partakers of the holiest of all in the light. All this marvellous presentation as a result of the reconciling work of Christ. So we've just now covered, our time is up, we've just now covered redemption from atonement giving access to and may not only young believers and old ones too know what it is to be under the blessing of both aspects of this gift of God's love.